Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatile. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. He's the CEO of Spearhead Management in Germany. He is an accomplished speaker in the areas of executive leadership, blockchain, artificial intelligence, and agile business management. He has authored numerous publications on areas of high tech, such as cybersecurity, as well as other business-related topics. Currently, he mentors executives and startups on areas of IT, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, blockchain, agile business management, supply chain, executive leadership, and emotional competence. He earned a doctorate in operations management, manufacturing, and applied information technology, an executive MBA in executive leadership, and an MBA in manufacturing supply chain. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Johannes Droja. Welcome, JD. Thank you very much. Thank you for this very kind and detailed uh, introduction. It is my pleasure to be on your show. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud that, uh, for, about this invitation and uh, the opportunity to talk to your audience. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining. So, JD, as an accomplished cybersecurity industry expert, what keeps you up at night? Well, there are basically two things that keep me up at night. The one thing is everybody using IT technology uh, without being aware of all the risks involved in using that. It can be a child of 14 year old using a mobile phone and knowing nothing about all the bad people out there in the internet wanting to abuse at least that device or the, the person behind it. That keeps me awake. Um, and the second thing that keeps me awake is the industrial automation that we have out there. Um, 80% of our infrastructure and industry um, was not built this century um, and is also not aligned and built for this century's uh, cyber threats. Um, and that's a risk and that keeps me awake. We, we, we need to act, we need to do a lot of things and there are good things happening, but they're not happening fast enough. And that keeps me awake. Those are my two main concerns when I try to sleep. You know what? I can so relate to that because if you think about it, all this automation and as well as like we were talking about stuff that children use, you know, baby monitors and baby dolls and things like that that are connected to the internet. They were created as novelties or as matters of convenience and without really having security in mind. Exactly. There, there is, in many of those cases, security was not a consideration. Um, security is not put as a priority to, for example, the parents who buy this as a, as a nice toy for the kids. Um, it's never been put on, on their radar scope, so they're not even aware of it. They have this nice doll, and that nice doll gets once a month an update with a new story, and everybody's happy but they don't realize that somebody could hack that connection and do whatever they want with it. Terrorize their children. Exactly. And <clears throat> this, is, this is on the one hand something where I believe that the manufacturers of those services and those products should do significantly more and be much more focal about what it actually means to have this fancy uh, child toy or this this interesting app that the kids put on their phones and their tablets and their computers. And on the other hand, the people who do understand and do know could do significantly more in helping the parents understand what their kids are dealing with. I, I do that, for example, in my program. I've do that, I'm doing that now since a little over five years 
internet safety for kids. And it's, it's two components. One is I help the parents understand what the kids will be dealing with and how the parents should respond to that. What, the, what should they look for? Um, what, what items should they focus on? What should they be very careful about? And the second part is, together with the parents or the parents with the children, explain the same thing to the kids. Now, that's an interesting challenge because the kids, they're very smart. They pick up stuff much faster than we adults do because they think less about it. But they use a different language. They listen with a different speed. They it's read more intuitive to them. Exactly. So all the people who do understand can do much more in helping the people who do not understand. That's one side. And the other side is those companies who manufacture it and those companies who sell it could take much more responsibility um, by explaining what it actually means and not just look at hey, I made a couple of bucks in, in, in selling somebody something that they don't really understand. And I think it boils down to we, the consumers, need to be more discriminating about which products we choose. Exactly. And, and, and look much more at what does this mean? Um, why does a football have an RFID chip? Do I need that to play football? Yeah, no. Trump's uh, soccer ball. <laughs> Exactly. But that was not just Trump's soccer ball. Those are hundreds of thousands of balls of that type sold around the world championship in, in football. And now we got a whole lot of, of footballs around with an RFID chip. Why? And what is that thing doing? And the company Adidas that, that delivered that ball has that on their website. You can look at all the details of what that RFID chip is actually doing but most people don't inform themselves. And I went to two shops just to check. I, I was curious. I want to, went to two shops of whom I know that they sell this, this football. There was no information. There was nothing saying, people, pay attention. There's an RFID chip in this football and you can install an app by which you can communicate through this RFID chip with the ball and all kinds of, that was not there. So people buy the ball are not informed about this technology involved, which still doesn't mean it's bad technology, but it's technology which is there and they don't discriminate on it. They're not informed about it. The fender is not doing an active job in informing. So it's never triggered, right? Nobody is, is, is going to look at it. Nobody's the wiser. Exactly. Until Mr. Trump gets that ball <laughs> and everybody talks about that ball, but nobody talks about what's with the millions of, of kids who have that ball at home and the parents who don't know what is going on there. Now, do you think that regulations like GDPR would have an effect on things like this? GDPR is a, is a, a framework which very clearly defines what are the rights of the consumer when it comes to um, when the consumer provides data. And on the other hand, and this is the thing which I like about GDPR, what are the rights of the consumer when the consumer says, no, I don't want you to have my data anymore. I've stopped using your service and I do not want you to own my data anymore. That's a very good part, but that is just a regulation about an existing relationship between a consumer and a company. What we do not have is when the consumer 
is either not aware of that data relationship, has never entered in that data relationship, and GDPR basically says, well, that's not allowed, but there is no um, institution around it that says, well, we're going to make sure that nobody can actually do that. So GDPR helps for a very particular part, and it, it helps for uh, mainly organizations like banks, et cetera, et cetera, which already have a certain level of transparency and are now forced to have a more transparent data relationship with their consumers. Where GDPR and, and other frameworks do not help is around the criminal activity. And you got a lot of criminal, criminal activity in um, collecting personal data, selling personal data. There's this gray zone, which is not officially illegal, but it's also, also not really legal how data is collected and sold and used. Um, you see that looking at your mailbox every single day. Every person who has been active on social media for a period of two years or more does still continue to receive all kinds of emails, all kinds of offers, all kinds of commercials, all kinds of ads from companies never um, interacted with. But they're still there. Yeah. Right? And, and somewhere in some policy of some platform, and this is the fun thing, and it still works on a GDPR, you can now authorize a company to provide your data to a future partner. Mm, that's how they get it. That's how most companies do it. So when you would actually read the small text, which we all do, of course, we, we all read all those- Read YouTube. artificial intelligence just to go through those 50 pages of uh, fine print. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there, in most cases, you will see that it's not just a consent for now, it's a consent for, a consent for the future. And that means they sign up a new partner somewhere in the future, and that partner, by your previous consent, now is authorized to also receive your data. You were never aware of that because the contract wasn't signed, right? You, you did not know that that future partner or partners are going to also receive data about your behavior and your preferences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there even GDPR has its weaknesses, but that's in a, in a world where still rules apply. There's also the world where rules don't apply. And it's, um, it's, it's, but I use this always in my workshops. I, I use this following example. Okay, guys, I showed up for this workshop. That means I had to fuel up my car because I need gas, right? So at, I use my miles and more, and I use my payback card, and I use my credit card. My license, <clears throat> there's a video system at the, at the gas station. So my license has been seen, right? Um, then I drive from wherever I am to here. During that trip, there's um, traffic control. Electronic toll. All those stuff. I leave all kinds of fin fingerprints everywhere, and I'm not even aware about it. So I now come here. Um, I, had to, uh, I signed up for this workshop, just like you guys. Um, so I provided uh, some ID. <laughs> I provided my credit card. I booked a hotel. They also wanted my credit card. Hey, they got bonus program. Of course I used the bonus program. I get stuff from that. So for just one workshop in one location, I leave at least 100 fingerprints. And I'm not even aware of that. And maybe 10 of those are actually where I interacted with. And 90 others 
they just interact with me and they receive information and as long as that is in good hands still no problem but as soon as somebody in that chain of fingerprints wants to abuse those fingerprints it's a big pile of information and in most cases there's very little i can do about it other than okay i don't travel places i don't pay with well, credit cards. live in a cave right we can't do that it's not practical that, that's not practical but even if i live in a cave i can go to the um, city city uh, website and and check my address so even if i would live in a cave um, as soon as the cave is registered there's data about me <laughs> and then um the wait the city the province the state the country want to have taxes so hey my cave is registered right <laughs> it's amazing and and the the interesting part is that we as people and we as companies and we as employees and we as as consultants and we as we're not aware about it unless a big breach is in the news again or we see that there has been a major problem at some credit card uh, instance those are the th moments that we get aware of it visa, visa had a a downtime um, a few weeks ago suddenly all the visa people are aware of how many the customers aware how many times a day they use the visa credit card because it's not working in all other normal cases that's somewhere subconscious you you're not registering in your mind how many times you leave your fingerprint with data right how many times you use your credit card put it in a device and all the data is required to uh, abuse your credit card is on that card so if that device is not the real device but something which is uh, manipulated there goes your credit card so what are some of the practical things that we as consumers or we as just ordinary people can do to protect ourselves the first the first and most important thing is before you provide information take one step back and ask yourself why why do i at this moment provide this information um a very a common method is that you need to identify it being uh, you need to identify yourself as a person and and being 18 or older or etc cetera, etc cetera, by entering your credit card details why why should i enter my credit card details um one of the things is most people when they order something online they enter their credit card and they save it for, because it's convenient for the next time now your credit card details are not just used for this one purchase they are in an account in an account on that website is your credit card so next time when you want to purchase something yes very convenient that you have your credit card details already stored but if somebody hacks in your account or someone hacks into their account onto their account there's also your credit card yeah. think that's that's step one and then there are amazing amounts of of small logical steps um i seen that last time i was on on, on in a hotel there's a bus of tourists coming in and they all leave their passports there and then somebody from the hotel is going to do all the check-ins and all and that pile of passports is still laying there 
And these people get their keys and they go to their rooms. And then at one point, somebody from the hotel is making copies of all those passports. And then after a while, the tourists come and pick up their passports. I don't. I bring a copy of my passport. If they want to see my passport, here's my passport. We need a copy. Here you go. And that copy has my signature over it. About 10% of the um, f falsified passports come from such instances where people just leave their passport for a certain period of time out of their control, right? And everything you need from that passport to make a fake version of that passport, which uh, of course, the technicians will immediately identify that this is not a real passport, but the data which you need to, um, to, to book a, a trip, uh, the data which you need to book a flight. It's good enough. That, it's good enough, right? And some 10% of, of those cases really come from situations where people just left their passport somewhere and then two, three hours later picked it up again. It's what was not in their control. You see the same thing with credit cards. I, you, you, you eat in a restaurant, you want to pay by credit card. In most cases, they will come with a very fancy device to your table. You put your credit card in, you type your PIN code, you take your credit card out. There are also cases where um, the waiter will take your credit card, go to the back office and come back, comes back with a paper and your credit card that you need to sign. I don't never leave my credit card in anybody's hands when I'm not there. I want to see what they do with that credit card. Simple, simple tricks. Those are basic things. Um, I did an interview with, with uh, somebody who is in the illegal business of, of dealing in with credit card data um, a few years ago. And he told me that um, about a third of the credit card data that they have is not stolen from websites. Two-thirds is through websites and, and all kinds of, of other things, through hacks. But about one-third is um, obtaining credit card data from people they pay a little money to collect data who work in stores, who work in shops. Who, so they take that card, um, they take pictures of the credit card. They have a device mounted and they take a picture of both sides of the credit card and they hand it back to you. You don't even notice if you're not paying close attention. So those are triggers to pay attention to your documents, pay attention to your information, pay attention to your credit card. And before you hand it somewhere, think why, why am I doing this? Why do you need it? Why do you need my, my address if my email would be sufficient? You know, that, that makes so much sense. Um, many people just do things automatically when people ask them for it. I know here in the United States, we have this thing called a social security number, which yes. is the primary form of uh, identification for financial matters. And many times people ask for it and there's no valid reason for it. Exactly. And, and what, I've, what I've heard many, many occasions is, yes, but with the social security number, uh, we, there is logic in it, so we can then check of that per, if that person is a real person or not. That's one plausible reason. But 
it also means that if there's logic behind it, I can guess it. Yeah. That's risky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plus. But it, but anyways, you know, it all boils down to simple common sense. Uh, common sense is, is yes. very important. Great. And by the way, uh, JD, um, that I internet workshop that you give, is there a uh, website or URL for that where people can check that out? Um, yes. There's, uh, on my, on my uh, personal website, um, johannesdroger.com, um, there are several entries for that, and I keep refreshing that, of course. Uh, I have started to put, but that's not complete yet because I need to do some additional editing. I've started to put some on YouTube. Um, and the end of August, we're going to release a full updated uh, version of Internet Safety for Kids. That is also going to be on my website again, johannesdroha.com. Um, and I'm very happy to say that a couple of people also help with translating the text in that workshop. So we now have it in English. We have it in Dutch, of course. We have it in German. We have it in Russian. Um, some people are working on the French edition. And, and this, is, this is, for me, a, a very important thing because the more languages we have available, and it's two videos, one video for the parents or teachers and one video for the kids, the more languages available, the more people that can use it. And it's twice 10 minutes. It's a very good investment. So when is the Hebrew language coming out? Um, I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to talk offline. <laughs> Let's do that. Yes, I, I want, I want um, basically that everybody who has children or, or works with children as a teacher is basically able to say, hey, I'm going to look at this. And, and I will invest 10 minutes to really review what is this about. And then I will invest 10 more minutes with the kids so they are better prepared. It doesn't mean that they're now 100% safe. They just better understand what the issues are and they better understand what they need to take care of. And this is the coolest thing. Once you explain it to the kids in a way that they really can relate to, they take much better care of it than most adults I know. Because most adults, after two days, forgot about it. <laughs> and the kids come back and say, hey, look, this is now on my mobile phone. I, uh, that's not right. Right? They start asking questions and they start checking and they, they want to know if they understand it correctly. It's really interesting and it's really cool. Yeah, they, they, want, you know, they want to do what's right and they want to exactly. follow the rules. Exactly. So, J.D., by now we're familiar with the term Industry 4.0, which I believe was given by the German government, right? Exactly. That, that in 2012, they uh, introduced this, um, this, this method. What I find very intriguing is that out of this whole concept of, of Industry 4.0, the main focus is on uh, Internet of Things and, and digital transition. But industry 4.0 is about a lot more. It's about creating flexible industry. So we no longer have to build those great batches of products that we are able to do um, a single piece flow. We, we produce a part, pump up. We, you need one part with this specification, let's make it. You, need, you see it in the, in the car industry, for example. It's not a product which you can customize so much as a car. You have hundreds and hundreds of different options when you start to select a car that cannot not be efficiently produced 
with the old industrial system, which is based on, on, on mass production, on, on large volumes, batches of, of 5,000 times the same thing, and then you change the machine. So Industry 4.0 is a concept of let's make sure that we have a good data structure. Let's make sure that we have good information about all the steps in the processes. Let's make sure that this is no longer a centralized uh, universe, but individual sensors, uh, uh, edge systems. But also, let's make sure that the production processes become very flexible, that we can make quick changes, that we produce significantly less waste, that we do this with much better energy efficiency. So this whole, whole concept of Industry 4.0 is about um, being able to respond to what um, the consumer and the market wants, and also the understanding that if we today know what the consumer wants, the latest next week, we have no clue what the consumer wants because the consumer keeps changing. So not a fixed concept for today, a flexible concept by which we can continue to react to all the changes that the consumer and the market wants from us. And that is industry 4.0. And, you know, which takes us to the next topic, which is AI, because that's a, that's the cornerstone of industry 4.0. AI is here to stay, right? And one of the practical benefits of AI is the way it can analyze data at such a rapid pace in a way that for humans will be inefficient or impossible, you know, similar to like what we just discussed, the way you can switch gears so quickly from one type of manufacturing to another. Um, we're just coming off an episode that we did on healthcare. So can you share some of the innovative things that you've seen with uh, AI in healthcare? One of the things that I've seen, and I, I have never been aware of that, um, is that a, a person, a human being, can basically analyze four to five data points when they are in a relationship, it's most of the time three. So if you, if you look at, a, uh, at, at an analysis of a, a health issue, um, a very qualified physician will go through the information which is provided and uh, not sounding uh, respectless, we call that data points. He gets some data from the patient. He gets some data from other researchers. He has a lot of information from his studies and experience. And, and good physicians continue to learn. And continue, but still, they have limited access to the data points and restricted capacity to process that. What I've seen re recently is a very, very interesting project where AI is used to speed up that first process of all the different possibilities of the gigantic library of, of treatments and and. Um, symptoms and what does the patient show and what not and then by the end comes up with a very uh, detailed file of findings and data that is given to the physician and the physician is significantly more efficient um, in, in putting up the diagnosis. What is the, the reason that this uh, patient is seeing um, is showing these symptoms, but it's not showing those symptoms, right? <clears throat> Speeding up the process for the physician itself, making 
um, the path which many patients go through, they first go to their local physi physician, then they send uh, the transfer to a hospital, and they go to another specialist, and, and then some tests will be done here, and uh, lack of capacity, waiting list. If, if you're unlucky, you've got two months until you finally get to the point where people actually know what the problem is, and then they have to figure out how to solve that problem with you. And then hopefully they made the right uh, assessment. Exactly. And what you then see in many occasions is that a patient is basically um, sent to the wrong specialist because it was not recognized properly. Or what you can see is that a patient um, has to follow a certain set of rules before finally ending up with the right um, specialist who is able to identify what go, what's happening. And I've seen a, a very interesting project where AI is really shortening this up. The general physician taking the normal information uh, that grows through a very fast stream of analysis where it's not four or five data points. It can be thousand data points. And the library is extremely uh, huge. And the next, the next physician is already a specialist who is confirming or uh, requiring some additional data about the findings of AI. And that's in the interest of the patients, of course. But it's also in the interest of the physicians because most physicians, and I know a couple of them myself, they just want to do the best possible thing for their patients. Their restrictions is time and budgets. Yeah. So that's one of the things I really like about the application of AI um, in the field of, of medicine, that it can help both sides of the table, the patient who needs help and the physician who really wants to help. He just has to go through all the steps um, to make the proper diagnosis. And that's one of the things I, I cannot wait for the next step in AI. For sure. And, you know, you hear about waiting lists where people have to wait for months to see a specialist. And perhaps AI can help speed that up as well, because a lot of that time spent diagnosing and misdiagnosing and repeat uh, tests and things like that can be eliminated with AI. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I expect a lot there. I also expect a lot in uh, when, when we talk about waiting lists, about, is simple optimizing. And I have a lean background. I do this automatically. This, this happens in the back of my head. Optimizing capacity, right? Make sure that the, the laboratories and the specialists um, get assigned the real cases where they can actually contribute um, and, and, and do that in, in an optimized manner. Do that um, as, as quick as possible and do that with the proper resources. And AI can help there. AI can say, doesn't make sense to do this laboratory test because for this particular uh, suspected illness, this laboratory test doesn't give us any information. Let's do this other one. Um, all kinds of thinkable scenarios. And let's keep track of how many times we sent this poor patient for the same test. Exactly, exactly. So this is a perfect segue to our next topic. So let's talk about blockchain. Um, you know, everyone associates it with cryptocurrencies. 
And we're starting to see so many more applications for blockchain than we've ever imagined from healthcare to manufacturing, even real estate. Everyone's jumping on that blockchain bandwagon. What types of creative applications are you seeing out there? Um, well, the first thing, the first thing I want to say is that there's still a lot of hype around blockchain. And, and what you see is that a lot of organizations are, are, are calling blockchain. And when you ask them, what is it? Silence. So I think 50% of what we currently see in, in blockchain is not really blockchain. It's just like a test of, of, um, of what could be blockchain. The very creative things that I'm seeing is, for example, in the car industry, um, when you buy a car, you have one contract with the dealer that is going to sell you that new car. Um, but in reality, that car is some 500 to 1,000 contracts to supply the around 30,000 components which are needed to make that one car. And then there are some 200 contractual partners involved, logistics companies, et cetera, et cetera. It's a whole chain of contractual um, relationships for that simple one car. After you bought that car, you need to pay taxes, insurance, you have to have service on it. Uh, at one point in time, something breaks, so you need to replace it. That's the second life cycle of that car. Recalls, I'm sure. Exactly. And that involves, again, a lot of contractual obligations. Now, one of the interesting things that you will then see is the second owner of that car, and in average, around, um, especially in Europe, in average, every car has about 10 owners until it's scrapped. Right? So the 10 people having that um, one car until it ends up somewhere in the scrapyard. Owner number six, of course, wants to know, am I buying it with the real 150,000 or does it have 450 already? but it only shows 150. Um, you want to know if the service is done because that has influence on the value of the car. But the car manufacturer already wants to know um, during the guarantee period, um, there was an issue detected with the brakes of a particular type. Do I have to recall all the cars? with the brakes from this type from that particular vendor, or can I identify out of the 150,000 models which I've sold, the 12 cars, which has the one technical issue, um, is that possible for us? Can I really put it down to a smaller lot and just recall the ones who actually have that, um, have that problem? And there we see blockchain with the distributed lecture, meaning, uh, ledger, meaning, the suppliers put their fingerprints, all the components and 30,000 components to build one car. That's a lot of suppliers. And when they put their fingerprints for the parts in the blockchain and the car manufacturer then shares that blockchain with the owner and the next owner, etc., etc., then it becomes possible to say, we are not going to recall um, one example with airbags, malfunctioning airbags. No. 560,000 cars recalled. That's a lot, a lot of waste for 12 cars that have that 12,000 12, cars that actually had the defect, which is still a lot, but it could have been reduced to the actual number, right? And, and 
Later analysis showed that it would have been possible to identify those cars, but that analysis, because all the data was not available, would have taken so long that we probably would have had some lethal accidents and we didn't want that. And the car supplier didn't want that. So the car, the, the car manufacturer said, I pull back all the cars, my cost, I solve the problem. A lot of problems solved, which were not a problem. So that is something where blockchain can really make a difference. When we look at the financial sector, and there's a lot of acti activity at the moment, which is really focused on the results and the benefits of, of blockchain. Um, in the financial sector, you see so much redundant data between different partners in the financial transactions. <clears throat> you see very complicated processes around that redundant data and the management of that redundant data. Bring that together, especially when it's cross-border, then it gets even more complicated because then central banks are involved. Bring that together in a, in a blockchain, have that information stored once, shared, have that information therefore also transparent and have that information in a way that um, we make sure that everybody is using the same data. You can optimize processes around that. You can reduce costs around that. You can make processes which today are manual. You can make them automated and you have um, a building trust uh, component due to the blockchain because if i now change my record that record is changed through all the partners in the blockchain so if all the other partners in the blockchain have a different record then we know uh oh you try <laughs> you yeah. try to cheat me right um and that's a very interesting that's a very interesting application of of blockchain where we basically say we can reduce so much of what we are all doing the same to all doing that one thing um, that we have significantly less cost, we have significantly less resources, significantly less risk of mistakes. That's, and, and, and that I think is, is one of the coolest uh, things that we can achieve. This, the part I'm still concerned about is um, the required resources, energy consumption, computer uh, capacities, to have those massive res uh, uh, blockchains um, around the world. Um, that is something we have to work on. We must. And it's interesting because, as you know, quantum computing is, uh, is coming out and it'll mm -hmm. be dream soon. And that's going to solve a lot of problems, but yet it's going to create a slew of additional problems with regards to cybersecurity. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, there has been an experiment and that was done by a peer-to-peer uh, network is it possible to crack a 256-bit um, hash code? It took five and a half years, but the code was cracked. Good. Then uh, Mr. Snowden made some publications that there are particular partners who have enough capacity to do that already significantly faster. Uh-oh. We're not happy about that because that kind of encryption is basically in our thinking something that you cannot crack, that doesn't make sense. And if you can crack it in five years, well then it's so old, nobody cares. Yeah. When we talk about quantum computing, that's going to be a matter of, of minutes, if not seconds. And you went, what we now consider brute force, 
right? That you just say, okay, I got no clue, so I'm just gonna, Do I'm everything. just going to smack it with all brute force. And when it comes to hashes, that means you're just going to try every thinkable combinations. What we now see, if you if you take a, um, an MS Office Word document and you encrypt that, and I don't mean password protect, you save it as an encrypted document, and you have adequate text in that document. It's going to take some 10 to 14 years with current capacity if you put uh, a re really fancy computer uh, to hack that. Good, you can split it up and say, I, I bring in a bunch of people or I hack a bunch of computers. Um, and, and I'm going to reduce that to maybe two years. It's still plenty of time. It's, it's still plenty of time. When we talk about quantum computing, that's a joke. So what we then need to do is come up with encryption and with hash and with, with cybersecurity methods, which basically, again, put the required effort so far ahead of what quantum computing can provide, as we currently do, we currently say the blockchain, the encryption in blockchain is so secure, there's no capacity available. Then we see some cases, well, well it's not always right, but we're still ahead of what nowadays computer capacity can actually achieve. When quantum computing is coming, and it's coming up fast, we need to figure out how can we put our safety measures so far ahead of, of quantum computing as we currently believe that we are with our current um, safety measures compared to the current computer capacity. And my concern a little bit is that we then, the resources required to provide a safety from quantum computing are going to be so enormous that they're not going to be available to everyone. That's a little bit of my concern. And, and you know, that's a, you know, just a great thing to think about. And it takes us back full circle to how we started the conversation, which is the concern about IoT um, for consumer and industrial IoT solutions, because these manufacturers that are making the devices today need to be thinking about what's coming out in the next five years and manufacture their IoT solutions. Well, maybe not for protection against quantum computers, but with the capability of applying patches or some kind of an update down the road so that when, when that threat becomes real, if it's within that prescribed lifetime of that device, that uh, they need to be able to figure exactly. that out. Exactly. And, and this is a, a wonderful initiative um, started by Siemens at the uh, safety conference in Munich. It's called Charter of Trust. And a lot of, a lot of companies have already signed up for that Charter of Trust. IBM is on board, Dell is on board, a lot of, a lot of more. Um, and in the Charter of Trust is basically 10 strategic points. And one of them is we are obligated to provide patches and updates during um, a reasonable lifetime. And, and one of the obligations the partners sign up for is security by design, by default. We, we have to focus on security and not figure it out later. Education is one of their strategic points, their obligation to provide education. And this Charter of Trust is, is one of those initiatives, and it's spreading more and more partners are signing up, is one of those initiatives 
by which the manufacturers of the technology and the key users of those technologies say, yes, we are responsible. And, and we sign up for that. That's our commitment. We sign up for that responsibility. And I think that's a wonderful initiative. And, and that gives us at least vendors and manufacturers who are aware of, of what, is, what is happening and aware of their obligation and responsibility. That's a big improvement compared to, let's say, five years ago. Yeah. And I'm so happy to hear about that. And I think that's going to become the gold standard for IoT moving forward. My advice currently to my clients, and I, I assume that I will continue to do that for a long time, is when your vendor is not signing up to Charter of Trust. That's a warning sign. That's not a good sign. Yeah. Right? And the second advice is you can take that Charter of Trust and say, hey, this is my policy, and I'm going to mirror that Charter of Trust. So um, education, yes, as an organization, we are now going to take care of cybersecurity education. And, and um, oh, I, they expect that on the devices for a reasonable life cycle, patches, upgrades must be available. Okay, I'm going to purchase material based on that requirement. So if you as, fen you as vendor are not willing to sign up for those patches and upgrades and security, hey, I, I don't want to shop with you anymore, right? That's the thing you can do with that. The onus is on us. We, we, the consumers, we, the corporations who are buying this technology, we need to make that our standard, like you said, and demand that. And the market, the free market will decide who ends up uh, a, viable, uh, a viable solution in the future. Exactly. Exactly. Let's use that buying power that we have and not use enough. Exactly. So, JD, what's next for Industry 4.0? What's, what's next for Industry 4.0 is I assume that, or maybe I should say I hope, that there's going to be a cleanup of some of the older industry. We got some older industry which is polluting the environment, and we should focus on that. There is um, a, um, a big demand for uh, making those those machines and equipment which are currently still working but are not flexible enough Let's make them flexible and let's make some decisions. Can we, can we retrofit them or do we need to replace them? That's, that's one thing that's going to um, consume a lot of attention, a lot of budget. And moving forward to the future, I am 100% convinced that AI is going to be an even bigger thing in Industry 4.0 than big data is. Uh, because AI will help us faster decisions, put the decision at the place where it should be, put the, put the supervisor or, or even the operator of a machine, uh, provide him with the proper information based on which he can make decisions. Is this the right quality? Do we need to make some changes? Do we need to make a, che a check on that? I think that is going to make, uh, play a big, big role. Um, and with a few upgrades to the concept of, of Industry 4.0, we can add the fingerprints of everything we do in a blockchain so we can create transparency. And that is what I believe is going to happen out of Industry 4.0, much, much more transparency. So the consumer at the end can say, okay, I bought this T-shirt of the market, of the brand I like, but I want to make sure that that is not 
produced somewhere in an Asian country by, by 10-year-old children, uh-uh, I want to know where this comes from. And I got a certificate, not just a, a label. No, no, that's a blockchain-based confirmation. Um, wow, fighting, fighting uh, child slavery, wow. Those are things we can do when we all do it, right? And, and this, is, this is what, and as I said, um, what I expect on one hand, but also what I hope for a lot, that we can do those things. And we create that level of transparency and put that decision back where it belongs, the consumer. When the consumer refuses to buy bad products, very soon... They're not going to make them anymore. They're not going to make them anymore. Exactly. What a great way to wrap up this episode. So, JD, how do people find you? Um, they can find me in, in various ways. My website, johannesdrohach.com. Uh, they can find me on Twitter, um, Dr. J. Drohach. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn, of course. Um, I use as much as possible uh, my, my, my always the same, uh, the same name. Um, <clears throat> I have recently put some, some things on, on uh, my YouTube channel, also under the same name. That will be uh, improving in the, in the coming weeks. Um, so the best way is either... Uh, contact me on my website, johannesdroger.com, or send me a quick email, johannesdroger.com at gmail.com. Uh, I do my best to respond as soon as possible. Great. And I'm going to post that in the show notes so people don't have to remember that. They can just click on that and get right to it. Perfect. Thank you. Great. JD, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience? My, my biggest thing, and I, I, I realized that I became aware of it too late. I could have been aware of that uh, earlier, but now I'm a father of kids, so you look at the world different, right? It's August, and that means there's still plenty months left in the year. We have already consumed more out of our planet Earth this year than the planet Earth can produce during this year. Every little step all of us will take to reduce that is something, and this is for me personal, something you do for my kids, we do for all the kids. So my words of wisdom is what my mama told me, don't do stuff for yourself, do it for your kids. Love that. JD, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. I really enjoyed having you on the show. It was my pleasure and I'm, I'm honored that I'm uh, on this show. Thank you very much. <laughs>